This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, September 10th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Are nice white parents to blame for failures in the education system, as a podcast from the New York Times alleges? Mary Claire Anselm, a policy analyst in the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy, joins me on the podcast to discuss. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, onto our top news. About 2,000 American troops are coming home from Iraq this month. General Frank McKenzie, the commander of the U.S. Central Command, announced that American troops in Iraq will be reduced from about 5,200 to 3,000. During a speech in Iraq on Tuesday, McKenzie said, This reduced footprint allows us to continue advising and assisting our Iraqi partners in rooting out the final remnants of ISIS in Iraq and ensuring its enduring defeat. This decision is due to our confidence in the Iraqi security forces' increased ability to operate independently. The U.S. decision is a clear demonstration of our continued commitment to the ultimate goal, which is an Iraqi security force that is capable of preventing an ISIS resurgence and of securing Iraqi sovereignty without external assistance. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany told the press that the withdrawal of some of America's troops was discussed during President Trump's August 20th Oval Office meeting with Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Khazami. Attorney General Bill Barr said Wednesday during a press conference that a federal program called Operation Legend is cracking down on Chicago's crime, making over 500 arrests and charging 124 people with federal criminal charges since the beginning of the program. Here's what Barr had to say via Arthur Schwartz. Over the first five weeks of Operation Legend in Chicago, murders dropped by 50% over the previous five weeks. August ultimately saw a 45% decrease in murders compared to July and a 35% decrease compared to June. In fact, Chicago in August saw the lowest number of murders at any time since April. The bottom line is that Operation Legend has played a critical role in cutting Chicago's murder rate roughly in half since before the operation. The Department of Justice announced Tuesday that they will represent President Trump in a defamation case filed by E. Jean Carroll, a woman who claims to have been raped by Trump in the 1990s. Carol is a former columnist for Elle magazine and says Trump raped her in a department store dressing room in Manhattan in either 1995 or 1996. During a press conference Wednesday, Attorney General William Barr said it is within the bounds of the law for the DOJ to assume representation for the president. Barr pointed to the Federal Tort Claims Act, or the Westfall Act, explaining that it allows for the case to move to the federal level and for the U.S. government to become the responsible party in place of the president. Barr said the case law is crystal clear that the Westfall Act applies to claims against the president, the vice president, as well as other federal employees and members of Congress. And he added this per CBS News. The court said that elected officials in our in our. Uh, uh, democracy, a uh, representative democracy, when they're answering questions in office, uh, even about personal affairs, any defamation claim 
is subject to Westfall. So this was a normal application of the law. The law is clear. Uh, it is done frequently. Uh, and uh, the little tempest that's going on is, is largely because uh, of the bizarre political environment in which we live and the, uh, you know, the, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Carroll responded to the DOJ's announcement on Twitter, writing, to Donald J. Trump, sir, I and my attorney, Robbie Kaplan, are ready. So is every American citizen who has been trampled by Bill Barr and the DOJ. Bring it. A Norwegian has nominated President Donald Trump for the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize, citing Trump's Israel-UAE peace agreement. Christian Tybring Getty, who has been a member of the Norwegian parliament for four terms, told Fox News in an exclusive interview, For his merit, I think he has done more trying to create peace between nations than most other peace prize nominees. The agreement announced by Trump on August 13th ushered in a full normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Fox News reported. In his letter to the Nobel Committee, Tybring Getty praised Trump's key role in facilitating contact between conflicting parties and creating new dynamics in other protracted conflicts, such as the Kashmir border dispute between India and Pakistan and the conflict between North and South Korea, as well as dealing with the nuclear capabilities of North Korea. 160 different human rights advocacy groups have signed a letter asking the International Olympic Committee to reconsider hosting the 2022 Winter Games in China due to the nation's human rights abuses. The letter was released on Tuesday and reads the IOC must recognize that the Olympic spirit and the reputation of the Olympic Games will suffer further damage if the worsening human rights crisis across all areas under China's control is simply ignored. China's foreign minister, Cha Li Zhang, spoke out against the letter saying, this is against the spirit of the Olympic Charter and China firmly opposes it. The International Olympic Committee responded to Reuters' inquiry about the letter, saying that the committee is neutral on political matters and the choice of where the games are hosted does not mean that the IOC agrees with the political structure, social circumstances, or human rights standards in its country. The Oscars have announced that they are implementing new representation and inclusion requirements to be eligible for Best Picture. The aperture must widen to reflect our diverse global population in both the creation of motion pictures and in the audiences who connect with them. The Academy is committed to playing a vital role in helping make this a reality, Academy President David Rubin and Academy CEO Don Hudson said in a statement on the Oscars website. We believe these inclusion standards will be a catalyst for long-lasting essential change in our industry. In order to be eligible, a movie must show diversity in two of four areas, ranging from the movie's themes to its staffers. Gender, racial, and sexual orientation diversity are among the types of diversity the Academy says it's looking for. Are nice white parents to blame for failures in the education system? The Heritage Foundation's Mary Claire Anthem joins me next on the Daily Signal podcast to discuss. This is Virginia Allen, host of the Daily Signal podcast. I don't know about you, but YouTube is certainly one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics, 
so I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content, from policy and news explainers to documentaries. If you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues you care about most. You can also search for the channel by going to youtube.com slash daily signal. I'm joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Mary Claire Anselm. She's a policy analyst in the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. Mary Claire, it's great to have you with us on the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks so much for having me. We recently had a really popular piece on the Daily Signal called Nice White Parents Responsible for Failing Public Schools, New York Times Says. Can you start off, Mary Claire, by telling us about your piece? Sure. So I decided to write the piece because I was listening to um, the latest New York Times podcast. And, you know, I'm sure many listeners out there know that New York, the New York Times comes out with a lot of pretty popular podcasts, uh, 1619 Project, one of them. Um, this is also from the makers of Serial, which is, of course, I think, you know, the most popular podcast ever or sort of kicked off the sort of podcast revolution that we have. Um, so, you know, I was definitely interested in the podcast given that those were its makers. And, and the title is quite catching. It's called Nice White Parents. Um, and, and it's an education-themed uh, podcast. So that was definitely interesting to me as an education policy analyst. And listening to it, um, I, I, it was pretty shocking what I heard. There's a lot of debate over why the public school system continues to fail America's children. It's a very complicated question. Um, people have solutions. Us at the Heritage Foundation think we have some pretty good solutions, and we've been trying to get those solutions out there for quite a long time now. Um, but this podcast said, you know, the problem is pretty simple, and it's that um, white parents are making decisions that are hurting the overall integrity of public education, um, which is quite a shocking claim. And it's something that we should be talking about. Um, we shouldn't really let them just sort of make such a claim and then uh, not uh, do a little bit of our own fact checking. It's important to point out that the podcast uh, chronicles the experience of a single school uh, and then sort of extrapolates the experience of this school into sort of the broader issues plaguing uh, all of public education. Um, but what, what bothered me as someone who studies these types of issues for a living is that uh, the, the underlying premise, you know, setting aside that they single out parents of a specific race, but they single out parents. They say that the parental choices are sort of getting in the way of this plan that the public education system has for America's children, um, which is such a, a, a nefarious way uh, of, of posing the, the problem. And it's something that people who people like myself who believe that parents should be the sole deciders over what and how their children learn. Um, parents should have autonomy in this space. Um, for people who, who come to this issue from that approach, um, hearing something like, you know, the, the choices that parents make uh, makes the public school system a worse place um, is really troublesome. And it's something that we should be talking about and fighting back against. Well, yeah, that was actually one of my questions. Um, something that you wrote about is how uh, you said that there were examples of parents getting involved in day-to-day operation of the school and that this podcast painted this involvement as an affront to public schooling. So can you talk about that statement that they alleged or that they said and your response to that? 
Sure. So, you know, again, this podcast talks about a single school. So the, 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 I guess you could say author, the, the host of the podcast um, doesn't give a ton of examples. So she gives, you know, a couple examples and then sort of says, now you see the problem. Um, so the problem that, that she gave an example of was that um, when um, a bunch of new parents came into the school system, they decided they wanted a French program. And so they got a lot of parents together. They did a little bit of fundraising. They were able to hire a French teacher and then boom, they offered um, uh, French classes at the school. Um, me as a school choice advocate, I look at this and I go, wow, what a great example of parental involvement, of parents advocating for the type of education that they want. Um, however, the host of the, of the Nice White Parents podcast said, well, uh, these parents sort of pushed in what they want to see in the curriculum onto the school that doesn't necessarily represent, like not all parents wanted a French course. Um, uh, and again, the, the solution to that isn't, we'll take decision-making power away from all parents. The solution is give every parent in America choice over where they send their children to school so that when they're shopping around for schools, they say, hey, I really want my kid to learn French. And they are able to pick between the public schools, the private schools, the charter schools, whatever they want. They're able to choose the school that offers the types of things that they want their children to learn and that they have the financial power to do so. School choice programs enable that to happen. But this podcast um, from the New York Times, Nice White Parents, says that the, the solution is, well, we can't have some parents advocating for their children. And this leaves behind the students that you can have sort of a tyranny of a majority type thing. So we should just take away all decision-making power from parents and leave all decision-making to education bureaucrats. And that that takes decisions out of the hands of parents. And, and quite frankly, it's kind of scary to think that we have these unelected people who are making such important decisions over how and what our children learn. Well, another point made by the New York Times uh, in this podcast, Nice White Parents, that you responded to is that parents choosing to exit the public school system leads to underfunded schools. Can you explain the thinking behind a perspective like this and what your response to this is? Yeah, so this is a, a common criticism that um, anti-school choice advocates uh, have is that they say, well, if you have people exiting the public school system, they're taking those education dollars with them and they're going elsewhere. First of all, if the public school system is serving America's children so wonderfully, then they shouldn't have to be worried about people exiting if given the choice. If the only way your school survives is by people being forced to be there, then maybe you have a, a bad product that, you, that you've got going on there. Um, uh, and, and that's certainly not a situation that we want uh, America's families to be in. Um, but it's a, it's a giant myth that is constantly uh, peddled that schools are underfunded. We uh, spent a massive amount of money on education in America. Um, since the creation of the Department of Education, education spending has only gone one direction, up, and it's gone up quite steadily. <laughs> and so test scores, uh, on the other hand, have remained entirely stagnant. Um, by pretty much any measure, we have not improved uh, education outcomes largely since the creation of the Department of Education, which has come along with billions and billions and billions of dollars in education spending. Looking at that, you can't argue that more money will somehow solve the problem if more money has not solved the problem for the last 40 years. Something else is going on here, and we need to have come up with more innovative ways.
ways of addressing the deeply rooted problems in the public schooling system besides simply saying, well, let's try throwing more money at it because that's the only thing we've been doing for, like I said, 40 years and uh, that, that hasn't yielded the outcomes that we want to see. Well, on that note, something else you talked about in your piece is that there's a disproportionate growth in the number of teachers compared to the growth in the student population. Mm -hmm. What's going on here and why do you think that's the case? As I mentioned, there's a massive amount of money going into the public school system, but teachers are right when they say, you know, hey, we're not getting paid a ton. Or if you look at school buildings and, you know, some of them are not up to date and you see students learning from outdated textbooks, all of those things are true, but it doesn't mean that the schools are underfunded. It just means that the money is not going to the right places. Um, and so uh, I believe in the piece I quoted Dr. Ben Scafferty at Kennesaw State University. He's done a lot of really great work looking at, well, where is the money in public schooling actually going? And what he found was uh, between 1950 and 2015, um, administrative staff has grown over 709% um, in that time period, um, compared to about a 100% increase in the student population. So that's a massively disproportionate increase in the number of administrators versus the number of students. And so when I look at those numbers, I, I say, OK, that's very clear to me. That's very clear exactly where the money is going. I mean, if you look at Washington, D.C., we're spending about $30,000 per student per year in the public school system, far and away higher than any private school tuition, $30,000 per student per year. And DC has some of the poorest schools in the country. I mean, we, we have consistently low test scores, low graduation rates. I mean, DC schools uh, by and large are not doing well despite that massive investment. And so, you know, I implore people who, who are really concerned about these issues to, to take a look at, well, where is the money going? We have a massive education bureaucracy um, going on in our country. And it's this huge untold story uh, that, that podcasts like the Nice White Parents podcast are completely glazing over. So that's why I mentioned at the beginning that they say that the problem with the public schooling system is quite simple. And that's the choices of parents. I would argue that it's a, it's a massive bureaucracy problem that's deeply rooted in the entire system. And it's going to be quite complicated to simplify that. Um, and in the meantime, we have students stuck in schools that are not serving them well, which is exactly why we need to pass legislation that would enable students to move around schools if it's not working for them. Well, Mary Claire, we had talked pretty briefly about that one example that was used in this Nice White Parents podcast where they were talking about these parents that wanted to have this French class and they formed a committee and they tried to bring this in and that was kind of looked down upon. And so my question to you is if you were talking to this host of this podcast or talking to people who felt threatened by that, what would you tell them uh, in that situation? I would say that squashing the voices of parents in this conversation about how to improve our schools is, is a really is a dangerous road to go down and it's not going to yield the kind of school system that anyone wants their kids to go to. The reason we have a public schooling system is to serve America's children. And the people who know their children best and can advocate for them the best are their parents. You can have the most well-intentioned school administrator who believes in public education and, and loves what they do, but they don't know your kid. They don't know how your kid studies math. They don't know uh, that your kid you know, doesn't have an ear for languages and might need a special attention, you, but you know that about your child. And so that that is why the system needs to be set up so that the people who know and can advocate for your, their children the best are the ones who have a voice. Um, 
I, I think that it, it's uh, it's really troublesome to hear um, people advocate for completely removing the role of parents altogether, uh, because then we have a system where we have uh, teachers deciding how your children are going to be raised. And we have a very diverse country when it comes to, to culture, when it comes to religion, values, and there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all system that, that meets the needs of this very diverse country's different values, you know, religions, cultures, etc. And that's why we need people, we need to have many options uh, that fit the schooling needs of, uh, of children, and we need to give parents a voice. I, I think that, that uh, squashing the role of parents in public education is exactly the opposite direction that we need to go. Mary Claire, you also talked about how the podcast not only attacked the autonomy of parents, but also their race. What's the problem here? That was definitely a, a very troubling you know, aspect, um, completely underlying the, the entire uh, podcast. And, and to be honest, it's, it's, it's hard to know what to say. I mean, uh, they, they singled out a group of parents based on their race, assumed that they all act the same, that they're making the same decisions, uh, and that those decisions are where the entire system's problems lie. Um, if that, that makes me uncomfortable, that I think that makes you know, pretty much anyone listening uncomfortable to hear that. And I think that there's a reason for that is that uh, it's simply wrong. Um, that's un-American. Um, you know, here in America, we treat people as individuals. Um, that's something that I very firmly believe. And I think that treating people as individuals is how we should walk into all policy conversations. And so uh, I definitely found it uh, troubling and something that we should be fighting against. Well, you also highlighted that this podcast from the New York Times did not offer any policy solutions in their whole discussion. And I know we've talked briefly about school choice and how important that is. But in addition to that, and maybe even in more depth, what sort of policy solutions would you suggest? Absolutely. So school choice, it, it cannot be overstated um, how important it is, especially at a time right now for every child in America to have access to a school choice program. Um, you know, if you're in a school that, you know, offers French and you want to take Spanish, I mean, you should be able to shop around and, and pick what classes fit the needs of your family. And, you know, I'm using language, but there are, you know, far more controversial, you know, issues that might drive people away from, from a school system, like, you know, sexual education or the way that they, they approach religion. I mean, these are deeply personal questions that every family grapples with and approaches differently. And to have an assignment by zip code system where we're saying you must go to the school and if they're teaching something that undermines your values, you know, you're out of luck. I think that that's wrong and we shouldn't be asking parents to make uh to make sacrifices like that. Um, so definitely empowering parents uh, through school choice programs. But we're at an interesting moment where a lot of these public schools that people are assigned to are not reopening in the fall. And so um, at the Heritage Foundation, we, we've been talking a lot about how more parents are looking towards homeschooling. They're looking towards pandemic pods. Um, these are, have always been fantastic options for families, but we're at such a unique moment right now where families who had never really considered that before are suddenly saying, you know, maybe I will consider homeschooling. You know, maybe I will consider starting a pandemic pod in my neighborhood with the neighborhood kids uh, because the public school system ha has been falling short uh, of, of meeting the education needs of many of these families. So it's definitely an interesting time. Uh, uh, there's definitely never been a stronger need for school choice. 
Well, we talked about various aspects um, of this podcast uh, from the New York Times, Nice White Parents. But if there's like one overall message that you'd like to share with the New York Times to respond to them and to their listeners and even to our listeners, like what would that overall top line response be? I would say that that singling out parents is is the wrong thing to do, uh, that that we should be uh, lifting up the voices of parents, um, not squashing them. I think that if we gave parents more of a voice um, when it comes to what happens inside the classroom, we would see a a much better school system uh, based on uh, unique knowledge of individual children. Uh, we, We have the technology now, we have the resources to be able to customize education to the needs of a child through things like education savings accounts, through things like vouchers. Uh, We have that ability uh, and we get there through uh, empowering parents, uh, not not squashing their voices. Well, finally, on somewhat of a related note, Mary Claire, you're working on starting a new podcast. Can you give us a little sneak peek on what it will be about? Sure. So yes, I am starting a new Heritage Foundation podcast called COVID and the Classroom. Um, so if you are interested in what we've been talking about, you know, here today, uh, this podcast will definitely be for you. Uh, it's talking about uh, the, this unique moment that we are in education about how a lot of families are considering homeschooling, they're considering pandemic pods. Um, how are the public schools uh, failing to meet the needs of a lot of America's children, and what? options do parents have? Where should parents turn? So if you're a parent and you're really struggling with distance learning, uh, you will definitely be interested in our new podcast, COVID in the Classroom. Well, Mary Claire, thank you so much for joining us today on the Daily Signal podcast. Uh, We appreciate having you. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And that will do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now on iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.